Thank you, Jonathan. Let's pray. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. Lord God, we thank you that though we are reading an ancient book, we are hearing your contemporary word to us. And so we pray for hearts that are soft, that receive your word, because we want to know you and we want to worship you. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, Jimmy is a young Christian in his early 20s. He's been brought up in a Christian home where he's been taught the Bible and taken to church. Growing up, he's been active in his Christian union at school and then at university. He is zealous for the Lord and he's keen that others know him as well. And he likes to be thought through on various Christian issues. He enjoys reading a wide range of theological books. But one of Jimmy's hidden frustrations, if he's honest, is the immaturity of other Christians in his church. He's tempted at times to feel like others in his church are really rather far behind him, unsound, unthinking, undeveloped. There are some who won't drink alcohol. Now he knows there's no scriptural warrant for that. There are some who think shopping on a Sunday is a gross offence, and he knows that's basic legalism. There are some who believe homeschooling is the only credible option for Christian parents, and he knows there's freedom there. And so Jimmy, although he wouldn't quite articulate it like this, thinks these people are dragging him down. He rather thinks that church would be a better witness if more people were like him and less people like them. And he thinks he knows the answer too. Make the most of every opportunity. Educate the ignorant. And so that's what he tries to do. He shows people why they're wrong. But as he does it, he begins to realise that he causes more hurt and more upset. And the witness of the church, far from improving, is actually worsening. Well, Paul is writing this letter to the church in Rome. And the church there consists mainly of Gentiles, but also some Jewish believers. And one of the reasons he writes, it seems, is to generate unity between these two groups, Jewish and Gentile believers. And he explains in his letter that both Jew and Gentile alike are guilty of sin before God. Yet each, individually, is offered salvation for free in Jesus Christ. And so now, he says, from chapter 12 onwards, in view of God's mercy, live out lives that please God as one by the power of the Holy Spirit. And last week, we saw Paul addressing this particular issue of those with weak and strong faith. That's the language he uses in 15 verse 1. The weak, as we saw last week, are those with a tender conscience. The strong are those with a tough conscience. The weak feel bound by the ceremonial aspects of the Mosaic law. They feel that they must not eat certain foods and they must observe certain special days, even though these commands no longer apply to Christians in the New Covenant. And the strong are tempted to look down on the weak, to think the worst of them, to judge them, to be critical of them. But Paul says, as we saw last week, no. He commands them not to judge those who are weak, and he commands them to use their freedom in such a way that doesn't cause 
others to stumble. And we thought a bit about what this means for us today. Um, There are clearly truths in the Bible regarding the way of salvation that are essential to genuine Christian faith. Now these are not up for debate. Paul has outlined all of these in chapters 1 to 11. That's not what he's talking about. But there are, at the same time, um, matters of practice which are non-essential to salvation. And Paul says here, there is freedom. People are free to come to their own conclusions. Christians should not watch 15 or 18 certificated films. Christians are free to watch 15 or 18 certificated films. Christians should not go clubbing. Christians are free to go clubbing. Christians should not use social media. Christians are free to use social media. Christians should only sing traditional songs in church. Christians are free to sing modern songs in church. Christians should dress smartly to church. Christians are free to wear whatever they like to church. Christians should only buy free-range eggs. Christians are free to buy whatever food they like. There's freedom here. It's not that being liberal is necessarily always the better option, but that at different times in people's lives, people will come to different conclusions, and there's freedom. Now, this principle of charity over non-essentials I think also applies to how we view wider theological issues where we might disagree. So, um, should Christians be part of a particular denomination? Should Christians baptise their children? Should Christians be involved in political campaigning? Should Christian mums go to work? What kind of schooling is appropriate for Christian children? Now, you may not have thought about any of those things, but believe me, some have. And what Paul says is that these are non-essentials, which aren't necessarily irrelevant but where we must not divide. And so as Paul concludes his appeal in this passage, the key issue for us is this. How are we to maintain the unity that God has given us? How are we to do it when we struggle with the preferences, the opinions and the conclusions of others? How are we to do it when we struggle with the difference of others? How are we to do it when we struggle with the sin of others? See, the Christian life is not to be lived out alone. It matters how we relate to each other. And in this passage, what Paul does is he points us to the example of Christ. He says simply, look to Christ. See that Christ put us before himself. He accepted us for God's glory. And only when we've looked to Christ will we then be able to put others first and accept others for God's glory. For that is why this is such an important point, because what is at stake is the glory of God. So two things Paul says. He says, firstly, put others first, and he says, secondly, accept one another. So firstly, put others first. Verse 1, have a look down with me. He says this, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. It's interesting here that Paul describes the weak faith of the weak as a failing. It shouldn't be like this, he says. Now remember, it's not that these people are necessarily young Christians or immature Christians. It's simply that they are sensitive about certain practices and they don't need to be so. Paul himself, remember, is one of the strong. And those who are anxious about eating food that is unclean have just not understood the Old Testament food laws no longer apply. Remember, in the Old Testament, God's people were to make distinction in all areas of life And the food laws helped them to see that, that they were a special, chosen people. 
But in the New Testament, that distinction is fulfilled in moral terms. Remember, Jesus explicitly declares all foods clean. But the Jewish Christians haven't understood this. And it's a failing. Paul says, if today we have a tender conscience about what we drink or where we go or what we wear on a Sunday, it's a weakness. But what is the attitude of the strong to be towards the weak and their failing? Well, notice Paul does not say, open up the Bible with them. Show them chapter and verse. He doesn't say rebuke them. He doesn't say tell them how stupid they are. No, he doesn't say that, does he? He says bear with them. Now the word bear doesn't mean tolerate, but with great frustration, as if you sigh in their presence at their folly. No, it means more positively to carry them or to support them. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak. Of course, it would be easier for us to correct them. It would be easier not to have to keep your opinions quiet. Easier not to limit our liberty. But no, Paul says, we're not to please ourselves, but others first. And then he goes on verse 2. Each of us should please our neighbours for their good to build them up. See, our goal, he reminds us, is not necessarily to educate, but to edify. Our goal must be the good of our neighbour. And that does not mean always encouraging them to think exactly as we do on disputable matters. No, it means causing them to be built up. And just think, what is it that's going to build up other Christians? Well, it's not my opinions in all things. It's the gospel. It's the gospel that changes us. It's the gospel that builds us up. It's the gospel that we've seen in Romans that we can be declared righteous in Jesus, that through faith in him we have died to our sin and we have a new life in the spirit. We have a future glory that far outweighs our present troubles. We belong to others whom we're to serve. Now that is what's going to build others up, to know that God is for me and to know that God is at work in me. So it's showing people who they are in Christ and helping them to see the implications of that for their thinking and they're living, that is going to have an impact on people. Not all my opinions on every disputable matters. So it's worth asking the question at this stage, do we do that? Would others say about me that I'm someone who applies the gospel to their lives, that I build them up? Would they say I'm someone who reminds them of who they are in Christ, who encourages them to think and live rightly? Because we grow together. We're all influential and we can have a huge impact, positively or negatively. Put others first, says Paul. Well, why should we do this? Well, Paul then points us to the example of Christ. Look at verse 3. He says, For even Christ did not please himself, but, as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. See, Jesus' concern was not for himself, but others. Remember, Jesus humbled himself and became a man. He experienced rejection, misunderstanding, misrepresentation, betrayal, shame, and death. Now that was not pleasing to Jesus. Paul quotes Psalm 69, where it speaks of David the righteous man who endures insult and scorn for the sake of God's glory. Because he is zealous for the Lord, he is so associated with him that those who oppose God oppose David. So to Jesus, who came to do the Father's will, who came to make the Father known, 
was rejected by people as an expression of their rejection of God. And in the New Testament often applies this particular psalm to Jesus' death because it was on the cross that he bore the sins of the world. Because we by nature hate God, Jesus was punished. Our insults directed towards God fell upon Jesus. And just think, that was not pleasing to Jesus. That was painful. Jesus put us before himself. And so Paul says, put others first. And then he goes on and says, actually, we see this principle. If we consider the whole of the New Testament scriptures, verse 4, he says, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we may have hope. Now this verse is often quoted when Christians think about uh, the Bible. And Paul says to the Christians in Rome that although they're reading an ancient document, actually it is God's contemporary word to them then. And that is wonderfully true for us today, isn't it? We, we are studying an ancient book, but it is God's contemporary word for us. It is how God's spirit speaks to us today. That is wonderfully true. But in context, I think Paul is saying something a little bit uh, different. So he's just given an example of an Old Testament verse which speaks forward to Jesus and is an encouragement for us today. Because what it says is that there is a pattern of putting others first, of not seeking to please ourselves, of bearing with others. Just think in the Old Testament how God deals with his people. Think of Abraham, who kept failing to trust Think of Jacob, who kept deceiving. Think of Moses, who grumbled against God. Think of David, who acted wickedly. Think of Israel, who persisted in their rebellion. See, these are not good people whom God affirmed. These are bad people whom God was good to. And that is the Christian message, isn't it? If you're new to Christian faith or exploring Christianity, that's the heart of it. It is about bad people whom God is good to. He keeps on bearing with us. He's that kind of God. He's kind. He's forgiving. He's compassionate. That is what he is like. And what an encouragement that is for us today. Just think about it. If God bore with them, well, he might just bear with me. And if he bears with me, well, maybe I then can bear with others too. Paul says, put others first. You might think all this sounds a little bit like bare moralism. Put others first. Surely that's just common sense, you might say. Doesn't everyone do that? Do I really need to read the Bible to hear that kind of message? Um, You might have heard of Alain de Botton. He is a Swiss-British writer, philosopher, TV presenter. And in 2009, he released a book called The Pleasures and Sorrows of Work. And in the book, he describes different people's working lives and discusses the importance of work to the meaning of life. And he also gives some advice on how to deal with tensions in work life. And he says this in his book, he says, go easy on people. Give people a break. Be kind. Go easy on people. And so you might say, well, there we go. Just the same thing. Why do I need to read the Bible to do that? Surely that's just plain common sense. But interestingly, in de Botton's case, um, this particular book got a rather bad review in the New York Times. The journalist Caleb Crane 
said the book made superficial judgments about people and lost track of its main aim. It was a harsh review. But rather than going easy on the reviewer, de Botton wrote him a rather fierce email. And he said this, I genuinely hope you will find yourself on the receiving end of such a daft review sometime very soon, so that you can grow up and start to take some responsibility for your work as a reviewer. You have now killed my book in the United States. Nothing short of that. So that's two years down the drain in one miserable 900-word review. I will hate you till the day I die and wish nothing but ill will in every career move you make. I will be watching you with interest. Go easy on people. Be kind. And you see, you see, therefore, this is no bare moralism. What is going to help us to put others first when it is so against our sinful nature? Well, Paul says, it's the example of Christ and it's the power of of God. You see, not only does Paul command the Christians to act in a certain way, he prays that God would supply them with the necessary power. So just have a look at verse 5. He says this, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, God causes people to endure and to have the same attitude of mind towards each other so that they may be one and bring glory to God. And just think about it, our sin means we struggle to keep on going. We struggle to be encouraged. We struggle to maintain the unity that God has given us. We struggle to glorify God individually and we struggle to glorify God corporately. And as we said earlier, this is important because the glory of God is at stake in our relationships. And yet, wonderfully, God does not leave us alone to serve him. He gives us endurance. He gives us encouragement. He will give us the same attitude of mind. He will help us to put others first. It is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Put others first. Well, how practically can we make progress? Just a few thoughts. Firstly, admire the example of Christ. See, we need to pray that God would stir our hearts to be captivated by Christ. Christ put us first. He didn't please himself. He looked at us and he loved us. And he did it while we were still sinners. And if Christ was willing to give up his life for us, then the call for us to restrict our personal liberty is trifling in comparison. But it's counterculture, isn't it? Because we live in a society that is obsessed by autonomy, it's obsessed by personal freedom, it drives our thinking. Yet the Bible at heart calls us to choose happiness over autonomy, to go God's way, not our way. It says that sacrifice is better than personal freedom. And we see this truth beautifully displayed in Christ. Because he didn't talk about his rights. He wasn't driven by how he felt. He didn't demand his way. No, he gave his life. And he did it for us. We are to admire the example of Christ. Then we'll put others first. And then pray for God's help. Because we don't, by nature, find it easy to see people as Christ sees them, to serve them, to suffer for them, to bear with them. 
I don't mind helping you if it's a one-off. There's little personal cost. But ongoing submission for the good of others, that's a tough call. We are called to a radical, self-denying, God-glorifying, other-person-centred love. Not just once, not just twice, but as a pattern of life. That can only happen by the Holy Spirit. That can only happen by prayer. It's not bare moralism. Pray for God's help. Put others first. And then Paul says, accept one another. Verse 7. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. Uh, This command is the command he first gave in 14 verse 1, remember from last week. And so here we, we have a summary of what he's been saying so far. And again, there's a command, a motivation, an outcome, and a prayer. Accept one another, says Paul. There's to be mutual acceptance. And the focus here has shifted from the weak and the strong to the Jew and the Gentile. The church today consists of people from different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different social classes. It's a wonderful thing about being part of Magdalen Road. There's diversity. And yet in Christ, not just diversity, but unity. We're all sinners, we're all equally forgiven in Christ, and so we are to accept one another equally. And what is our motivation for doing so? Well, again, did you see, it's Jesus. It says, just as Jesus accepted you, accept others. And the outcome? Well, the praise and glory of God. And then Paul fleshes out the example of Christ. He says in verse 8, For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Christ became a servant of the Jews. He became a Jew. And he did it in fulfilment of the promises to the patriarchs, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. God promised that through their offspring would come one who would bless the nations. And Jesus is the offspring of Abraham. His presence confirms God's faithfulness. And the end result? Well, blessing to the nations, to the Gentiles, because through Jesus, God offers undeserved salvation to the whole world, so that all people from all nations might glorify God. So if this truth is is genuinely understood, no Gentile uh, recipient of this letter can dismiss a Jew in the church, because it's through the Jews the Gentiles have come to receive mercy. Likewise, if this is understood, no Jew can dismiss a Gentile in the church because Christ came so that the Gentiles might glorify God. Christ became a servant of the Jews for the sake of the Gentiles. God includes both Jew and Gentile. God accepts Jew and Gentile. God welcomes everyone. And he then goes on to say that this is nothing new. This isn't something that Paul has made up himself. It's always been like this. It's always been part of God's plan. So he quotes from various Old Testament passages. Look at verse 9. He says, As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. Again it says, Rejoice you Gentiles with his people. And again, Praise the Lord all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him the Gentiles will hope. See, Paul quotes from David in 2 Samuel 22. He quotes from Moses in Deuteronomy 32. 
He again quotes from David in Psalm 117, and he quotes from Isaiah in Isaiah 11. In the presence of the Gentiles, David will sing praise to God. Moses exhorts the Gentiles to rejoice with the Jews. David tells the Gentiles to praise the Lord. Isaiah says that from the Jewish people will rise the Messiah, who will be the hope of the Gentiles. So throughout the Old Testament, Paul is saying, in the law, that's Moses, in the prophets, that's Isaiah, in the writings, that's David, it has been God's plan to include the Gentiles. The Gospel is that all have sinned. All are loved. All are offered salvation. All are called to change. There is hope for everyone. God sees everyone the same. His concern has always been that everyone might know him and everyone might praise him for his goodness. And so Paul says, we must have the same mind, accept one another. And then as he concludes, he doesn't simply say, okay, get on with it. It's not bare moralism, remember. He says, verse 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Notice, he doesn't pray restating his exhortation. No, he prays that God would fill them with joy and peace and hope in the power of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because if that happens, if our trust in God grows, if our understanding of his goodness to us grows, then it will just be a natural overflow that we will accept others. We'll be so overwhelmed that God has accepted us. We won't need to be told to accept others. It will just be natural. So what is implied is that when we struggle to do that, when we don't accept others, it suggests that we really haven't understood God's grace to us. It suggests we think we deserve it and they don't. And that is not true. Accept one another, says Paul. Just return briefly to our friend Jimmy at the start. Remember, Jimmy sees his problems in his Christian life as being external and not internal. He thinks the issue really is others and not him. He hasn't understood that God's plan for him is that he might love those others. Because that is how God is going to be glorified. So what is going to change someone like Jimmy? How is he going to start to accept others? And if we're like him, how are we going to change? Final couple of thoughts. First, you see God's eternal plan for all people. See, God is not just interested in me. He's not just interested in Magdalen Road. He's not just interested in East Oxford. See, we've been given the privilege of being involved in God's eternal plan. It involves us wonderfully, but it goes far beyond us. It always has done. We should praise God for his love for us individually. Praise him that in Christ we've been accepted individually. But let's remember we're part of something much bigger. For God has accepted others too. Anyone who repents and believes in Jesus will be saved. And so we need to accept them as well. And I suppose that means not simply tolerating them, not simply smiling them at them occasionally, not just nodding and passing by, but praying for others, sharing our lives with others, having others into our homes, 
getting to know others, involving others, loving others, accept one another. See God's plan for people. Accept one another. And then pray that God would fill you with joy and hope and peace. See, why is it that I struggle to accept others? It's a simple command, isn't it? Very easy at one level to understand, but so hard to put into practice. Is it because they're difficult? In part. Is it because they're different? In part. Is it because they're sinners? In part. But I think at a much more fundamental level, the issue is me. And my indwelling sin, that's what it is. That is the heart of the problem. Because my sin is always much greater than my difficulties. I often wish that God would change my circumstances, take away difficult people. But I forget that actually God is far more interested in changing me than he is in changing my circumstances. I need God to do a deep work in my heart. And if he does, then the fruit of that will be the way I relate to others. May God change me so that I'm filled with joy in my salvation. Peace in my knowledge that I'm accepted by him. Hope in my future. And then, and only then, will I be able to accept others. Because I'll be so amazed that God has accepted me. Pray that God would fill you with joy and peace and hope. Accept one another. So how are we to maintain this precious unity that God has given us? Put others first. Accept one another. See the example of Christ.